So now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Annie Lutermeyer, who's an associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Um, she is not new to the Bay Area. Uh, many of you uh, know her from a lot of her work um, in HIV. She's at the Zuckerberg Medical Center. It has a longer name than I think even that. Um, but, um, and she's going to give us a CROI update with really uh, selected topics uh, from what was really, I think, sound like a pretty exciting meeting. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, and thanks for coming today. Um, so I'm going to take it from the aspirational, which Dr. Duick covered, to the very practical. Um, but I'm going to leave out um, experimental new drugs, because Dr. Benson is going to talk about um, uh, experimental drugs in the pipeline, including many that were covered from CROI. So don't think that the pipeline is dry. I'm just not covering it today. Um, all right. There we go. Uh, research uh, grants to my institution, Zuckerberg General Hospital. I know. We're having trouble getting, uh, getting used to this. Um, so I want to start out by talking uh, about, but we appreciate the money, so. Uh, <laughs> cardiovascular disease in HIV, which is certainly um, a huge issue for all of us clinically as we see the aging of the uh, HIV population. Um, so here's uh, the audience response question. So what is the highest yield intervention to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease in HIV-infected patients? You know, statin use in those with hyperlipidemia slash in the water. Uh, two, avoid abacavir and protease inhibitors. Three, stop smoking. Four, weight loss for those who are overweight. Or uh, five, aggressive blood pressure control. Okay, interesting. That, that's good, but I'm going to show you that, that we should also be focusing on lipids as well, and I think uh, and we'll talk about this. So a couple different studies. So first, this is the Athena cohort, so from the Netherlands, large uh, observational cohort of HIV-infected individuals, and they looked at, um, I think this was um, not incorrect, um, many, many thousands um, of patients. And they modeled, this was a modeling experiment, and they modeled out what would, and looked at people who had uh, heart attacks, and how they could have avoided this. And in the darker bar, it's if it was 50% uh, successful, and then the lighter bar if it was 100% successful. Um, and they could really reduce, the biggest reduction was in the green if they um, were able to uh, treat dyslipidemia and hypertension. Smoking cessation was close behind that, um, not meaning to say that that's unimportant, um, and then much less effect from avoiding um, antiretrovirals that had an increased risk for coronary artery disease, and here they talked about abacavir um, and protease inhibitors. And then earlier, HIV diagnosis and treatment, which Danny Duick referred to as the root of all evil inflammation, um, while I don't disagree with that, um, that did not have an enormous impact in this modeling study. So again, highlighting the need for appropriate treatment um, of hypertension and dyslipidemia. So how well are we doing at this dyslipidemia treatment? So this is from NA Accord, again, observational sort of cohort of cohorts um, from North America. And this is looking at the treatment gap between those who, and this was the ATP3 guidelines, so not the most current guidelines, which I know have come under some controversy, but I think are still uh, widely in use. But this was before those were implemented. Um, so in the bottom bars, in the blue, it looks at how many of these HIV-infected um, patients were prescribed a statin. This is 80,000 people. So this is a pretty big database. 
database. So 18% overall were prescribed a statin, so statins no are not in the water yet. But then the upper bar in red is the percent who were not prescribed statins but who met ATP guidelines. And 50% in 2013 should have been on statins and, and weren't. And I think we'd all recognize that the current um, American uh, College of Cardiology guidelines are even more robust. They really do recommend statins for a lot of folks, although they don't recognize HIV itself as a risk factor, which is problematic. But we're probably missing about half of the patients um, who should be on a statin. Now, who did they miss? Who wasn't getting prescribed? This was associated with younger patients, which kind of makes sense. I think we may be a little more tuned out on, on worrying about their risk factors, although people certainly can have heart disease at a young age. Black patients, which is really problematic because we know there can be an increased risk of, uh, of heart disease um, um, in our black patients. Smoking. People who were smoking weren't getting statins. Now, whether this is because they were less well engaged in care, this is an observational cohort. We don't know. These are certainly folks who need to be prioritized. Low CD4 cell count and those on a PI-based um, antiretroviral therapy. So we can postulate what the reasons are behind this. Again, observational cohort, but I think it suggests that we could do a much better job of getting people onto a statin um, right here in the uh, United States and in North America. This is follow-up um, from the NA Accord, so uh, looking at the population attributable fraction. So just a reminder what this is. This is the proportion of uh, myocardial infarctions, and in this um, study, these were all um, type 1 MIs, so true plaque rupture, not I was septic and the troponin went up, which is called a type 2 MI. So these are real deal plaque rupture MIs that could have been avoided in HIV-positive adults if they were unexposed to the modifiable risk factor of interest. And so they looked at, you know, uh, uh, smoking, total cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, kidney disease, et cetera. And you could see that the top three here were smoking. So if people didn't smoke, it would avoid 38% of the MIs. Total cholesterol, if it was better controlled, 43%. And hypertension, 41%. So really the top one here was uh, cholesterol, but really closely clustered smoking, cholesterol, and hypertension were the main issues here. So you could avoid nearly 80% of the MIs overall if you controlled these three main, main um, risk factors. And interestingly for smoking, um, when they looked at this whole cohort, um, between 75 and 85% of people were smoking at any given point in time. I know this isn't a surprise to us. We're all HIV providers here. There's a lot of smoking, but that's a lot of smoking. Um, so just uh, uh, just a good reminder for us. Interestingly, diabetes, uh, better control of diabetes didn't seem to play um, a big role here, uh, nor did uh, advanced, avoiding advanced HIV disease. Um, and treatment of hepatitis C certainly is important, but didn't emerge as a risk factor uh, here. Um, so what about this whole issue that the DAD study has continued to bring to our attention about antiretrovirals that may be associated with an increased risk of uh, coronary artery disease? And this analysis, they looked at two protease inhibitors, so adizanivir that's ritonavir boosted and darunavir that's ritonavir boosted. And in the first graph I'm going to show you, this is just the crude incidence rates of coronary vascular disease per 100 person years of follow-up. And you can see on the... Uh, uh, my left and right are correct. The right-hand side is adizanivir, and there's really no increase in risk over time of exposure. And on the right-hand side, you can see that in the darunavir folks, um, there is an increased risk. And I don't know what's going on with the three to four years. Both of them seem to be sort of funnily low, so I'm ignoring that. There clearly is a trend towards an increased risk in uh, cardiovascular disease in people with more time that they were put on darunavir. Remember, this is all observational. People were not assigned to darunavir, so it always raises the question of why are they on this? Are they more treatment experienced? Is there some channeling bias? 
So then they tried to get a little bit more sophisticated and look for the association between um, coronary vascular disease um, and cumulative PI use, and they looked along the, you know, adjusted for things along the causal pathway well, are they more likely to have a low T cell count, have a BMI that's elevated, have kidney disease, dyslipidemia, or diabetes. And it looked like there was still about a 50% increased risk in coronary vascular disease regardless of these um, risk factors in those who got um, darunavir. Um, uh, so it doesn't seem to be lipid mediated, um, but again, I think there's a lot of uh, caveats um, that are here because this is an observational study. But I think it is a good reminder for us that just PIs in general, it's worth taking another look in all of our patients as they age, and particularly if they have coronary artery risk factors, to ask ourselves, do they need to be on a PI? Now you may be saying, well, what? look, this is only darunavir, uh, maybe adizanavir is, is just fine. There's all these theories about whether adizanavir may be more coronary vascular disease friendly because it elevates the bilirubin. But I think overall, in general, the trend is towards trying to get folks off Proteus inhibitors if we can. But obviously, controlling their HIV is tantamount and the most important piece. And if you need to do that with a PI, you do that with a PI, including darunavir. Um, so I think this raises maybe more questions than, than answers, um, but just a reminder for us to reconsider our patients' uh, uh, PI-based regimens and to refine them if we can do so safely. Okay. So current ART strategies. Um, uh, I'm going to go into my second uh, ARS uh, question here. So which of the following has been shown to be equivalent to standard three-drug antiretroviral therapy? So dolotegravir-lamivudine initiation in treatment-naive patients, switching to dolotegravir-lamivudine after viral suppression has been attained, dolotegravir and rilpivirine dual therapy um, being initiated in treatment-naive patients, or switching to monotherapy after viral suppression has occurred. And this isn't what we think is a good idea. This is what has been shown to be a good idea. Lots, lots of theories here. But... Oh, I got a little, I got a little U2. For those of you who got to go to the concert recently, it was excellent. Okay, uh, that's correct, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you why. Um, and we don't have data for dolotegravir rilpivirine in treatment-naive patients, but we have data for a switch study. Um, so uh, need more data there. Okay, so this is the switch study. Um, dolotegravir and rilpivirine given in two identical studies called SWORD-1 and SWORD-2. These were in industry-sponsored. It was a phase three study, and basically they took individuals who were taking an integrase, a non-nuke, or a PI plus two NRTIs, and they were then randomized um, to, uh, uh, in, an, in an open-label way, to go on dolotegravir rilpivirine for 48 weeks or to stay on their standard um, antiretroviral therapy. And then later on, everybody got switched over to dolotegravir um, rilpivirine in an open-label uh, way and were continued to be followed. The important piece, you always the devil's in the details here in terms of who would qualify. It's a little stringent, right? That'd be on their first or second antiretroviral therapy. Um, and I can tell you that we were just enrolling in one of the injectable studies and we were looking for these patients. Boy, it's hard to find people who've really only been on one or two antiretroviral therapies before. You sort of think that's how it's been, but then when you dig back, well, they've changed around. Um, and so this is a pretty narrow group and I would just remind you of that. They have to be stable um, on their uh, therapy 
They had to be hep B negative. Remember, they're not including a hep B active agent here, so that's a big piece. They didn't have resistance testing in all of these patients. Um, they asked to report it if it was available, but it was not required that they had baseline wild-type resistance, so that's something just to keep in mind. Um, and uh, uh, on, on average, these individuals had been on therapy um, for about two years. Most of them were getting to nofavir. About 20% were on an integrase, 50% were on a non-nuke, and 26% had been on a PI. So how did this look at 48 weeks? Virologic outcomes were equivalent. Um, there was equivalent uh, virologic suppress, suppression. Um, very few folks had a virologic non-response, uh, non and there was an equivalent amount that didn't have data here. Um, so this met non-inferiority, which is what the study was um, designed to do, I think, in a, in a fairly robust way. Now, what happened in the very few who did have virologic failure? This is what we all worry about. There were two folks in the dolotegravir rolpivirin arm who failed. Neither of them failed with integrase resistance, and I think that's really important. That's what we worry about. One of the individuals had a 101K slash E um, at week 36, which confers low-level resistance to rilpivirin. This person had had some documented non-adherence. They restarted them um, on dolotegravir rilpivirin, and they resuppressed um, despite having a little bit of rilpivirin resistance. Um, so that, I think, is encouraging that we always want to know, well, if this doesn't work, what is it going to look like? And we all fear uh, integrase resistance, and I'm going to highlight why we should um, in a few minutes. How do people tolerate this? Well, not surprisingly, when you take someone from a regimen that they were on and tolerating and switch them to anything new, I find that they have more um, adverse events because it's just testing the water. So there were 17% versus 2% of drug-related adverse events when people um, were switched over to um, dolotegravir, rilpivirin, and there was more discontinuation um, due to AEs, but it was a low number. The markers of bone turnover, and this was, uh, they used a number of different markers, were decreased in dolotegravir and rilpivirin. Makes sense. They were probably removing the tenofovir, which was present in 70% of the regimens at baseline. No real changes in lipids, and they didn't prevent, uh, present any information on the uh, renal data. So it sort of leaves us asking the question, well, who can you really use this in? Um, there's co-formulation under study, so it'd be nice to have one pill once a day. Um, certainly attractive for the uh, nuke-sparing regimen audience, you know, those who have renal and cardiovascular comorbidities. But again, I think the big caveat is that you want to make sure that people don't have archived drug resistance mutations. Ropivirin is a good drug, but it can be a little bit wimpy. Uh, we have concerns about patients who have a baseline viral load that was greater than 100,000, so have questions there. Um, and certainly if they have um, NNRTI drug resistance mutations, there might be some concerns. I think it's not ready for prime time in people who are starting right off the bat. So I wouldn't start people on dolotegravir-rilpivirin without having more data. I think we have data for switching, which is a different environment. And remember that rilpivirin has to be given with food um, so um, and also should uh, avoid acid-suppressing medicine. So we have to be a little bit more careful with this medicine than some of the other fixed-dose combinations that we have. And then certainly in those who have um, active hepatitis B, this would not be an adequate regimen because there's no uh, hep B active pieces here but exciting and takes us sort of off the path of having to have nukes on board. And um, I think certainly, again, as we look at folks with renal and cardiovascular disease, we're always looking for ways to remove uh, uh, the nukes from the picture. Um, has anybody using this combination in their practice? I'm just curious. No, a cautious group. That's good. I like that. Okay. So what about um, switching people or simplifying their regimen to dolotegravir and uh, 3TC? This was the Lamadol study. Um, they took individuals who had a wild-type uh, genotype um, on their pre-ART genotype. On average, they had been on antiretroviral therapy for about four years. 
um, and uh, they could be on uh, any variety of previous uh, antiretrovirals. About 20% were on an integrase, 50% were on an, a non-nuke, and 20% were on a PI in conjunction with nukes. They then switched everybody to dolotegravir with two nukes for sort of a lead-in for eight weeks, and then switched um, everyone from there, and this was a single-arm study, um, to uh, dolotegravir 50 milligrams and 3TC, so they de-intensified, and they followed them um, out uh, 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 for essentially um, a year. Um, so again, just a reminder that they had to have a baseline wild-type genotype. I think this is really important. It didn't have to include integrase testing because that's not typically standard of care, but they did report it if it was available. People in general did great. Out of 104 patients, 101 maintained virologic suppression at week 48. So what happened to the three who didn't? All three did not have integrase resistance um, when they were tested, so that's good news. One of them had NRTI resistance with this 74V slash L mutation, which is an abacavir resistance mutation. Um, so uh, not, not super worrisome. Five patients had uh, serious um, AEs, uh, uh, none of which I think were robustly attributed um, to these changes. So I think there's some co-formulation uh, uh, that is under study. I think this is, again, an attractive option for highly selected patients. And I think the key here is you really have to know um, about their baseline um, drug resistance. I would want to know that um, to, to feel uh, fairly confident here. Um, but I think in a small single-arm study, this sort of late the groundwork. Uh, I think we're going to want a lot more data before this is, is ready for prime time, especially in the light of what I'm, what I'm going to tell you. Um, coming next, and I think the real kicker here is what would happen if people had an M184V. Um, we know that that can be tricky, and it's very widespread, and it can be transmitted. I think you'd really want to know that that was not present. Would this work if M184V was present? I don't know the answer because that's not what they were designing the study to look at. Okay, so what about dolotegravir monotherapy? Um, this was the Dolu Mono um, study. This was a randomized control trial that switched um, uh, into, took individuals who were suppressed on therapy and randomized them to switch to dolotegravir monotherapy at 50 milligrams a day versus continued baseline um, antiretroviral therapy for 24 weeks, and then everybody switched to um, dolotegravir monotherapy. And they had, uh, they looked at a time point at, uh, their primary endpoint was at six months, but then they looked at individuals going out to 48 weeks. Um, and uh, people had been on average on uh, antiretro uh, retroviral therapy for about a year and a half to two years. They had to have no resistance at baseline, um, and they couldn't have chronic active hepatitis B, and there's 104 patients. Um, so the, uh, I'm skipping their primary endpoint because it looked great. Um, at week 24, everybody remained suppressed who'd switched to dolotegravir monotherapy except for one person who had dropped out for other reasons. But when they followed people out to 48 weeks, they saw a statistically significant difference. And you may look at this and say, oh, you know, 92 versus 98%, that's not that big of a deal, you know. I'm still happy if 92% of my patients um, uh, are suppressed. But I think what starts to be a little um, distressing is when you dig into who these failures were. So first of all, most of the failures started to occur um, uh, late. Uh, they occurred after uh, week 24, which is when the primary endpoint was, and people were excited. This study, oh, wow, things looked, things looked good. Um, and what did they fail with? Um, so first of all, they, had they were um, highly adherent. So 95% of these individuals, uh, people reported a 95% adherence rate according to the clinician. And three out of six of them failed with um, uh, integrase resistance mutations, including N155H, which is a major um, integrase resistance mutation and can cause some cross-class um, uh, uh, resistance. We didn't have resistance data in all of the patients, so there were only six out of eight had this. And the study was discontinued um, uh, as a, uh, uh, as a not safe uh, way to proceed forward. Um, so I think this was uh, this is distressing. 
And this was followed on by another distressing report of three cohorts. Um, this was observational um, and some would argue not even research. There was a, uh, a, a pretty robust editorial that was written by Joel Glant that I would direct you all to that I thought was a very nice warning about um, exposing people to experimental therapies without providing informed consent, but that's another story. Um, so this was um, a, I'm hearing grumbling from the audience. You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so this was a multi-site retrospective evaluation of virologically suppressed patients who were switched for clinical reasons, but then captured in this database from a combination antiretroviral therapy to 50 milligrams of dolotegravir um, per day. And we don't know what the reasons were. So the clinician just wanted to switch them or thought it was indicated. Um, but again, this, this was not captured because this was not uh, uh, technically clinical research. If they'd had a history of virologic failure on an integrase inhibitor, um, or they had known integrase resistance, um, they were not allowed to do this. Um, so 122 patients um, were enrolled. That's a lot of patients to do something like this in. Uh, 11 of them developed virologic resistance. They developed it within 12 to 24 weeks after making this change on average, and nine out of 11 of these had integrase resistance. Um, and you can see in the panel over here that we're seeing some of the very worrisome uh, mutations, including uh, 148 uh, and uh, 155, as well as combination uh, mutations. So this is really distressing. Um, I think uh, once people get integrase resistance, uh, it really impacts what their opportunities are down the road. I think we've looked at dolotegravir as being a very robust agent when given in combination with nukes and all of the triamec and early studies uh, were, were very um, exciting that people were not failing with dolotegravir resistance, which is great news. But I think this is really a cautionary tale that we can only push the envelope so far. And for me, it tells me that dolotegravir monotherapy is not something that we should be pursuing. And we need to be careful with things like dolotegravir lamivudine, which could be dolotegravir monotherapy if lamivudine doesn't work. Same thing with dolotegravir rilpivirin. If you've blown the real pivorin, all of a sudden, what you thought was a really great idea, I just showed you the SWORD 1 and 2 studies, and that looks terrific. If your real pivorin isn't going to hold up, um, then you're giving someone dolotegravir monotherapy. So dolotegravir is a great drug. We all use a lot of it. I just think this, these were some cautionary tales about how we need to think about these drugs uh, and monotherapy moving forward, and that we need really good data to inform us before, before we make these decisions. And I know in clinic, we all have to make... Uh, uh, do, and it's the art of medicine, um, not always the science. I know my patients sometimes are on some crazy regimens, but dolotegravir monotherapy, uh, I think, shouldn't be one of them. Okay, so just two more comments about um, dolotegravir resistance, and then I'll move on. Um, so in general, we don't worry too much um, about people developing uh, dolotegravir resistance on uh, uh, three-drug therapy. This was a distressing case report that I just wanted to share. A gentleman with a T-cell count of 78, a high viral load, who had a baseline genotype that really was only notable for a V180, uh, V111i uh, mutation, but did not have integrase resistance mutation tested, got started on dolotegravir given with uh, uh, TDF and FTC. The viral load really didn't suppress um, the way that they had wanted to see it, so they ended up adding on uh, darunavir and ritonavir, but did a genotype at that time and showed emergence of an M184V and then a, a G163E integrase resistance mutation. They became interested and then did deep sequencing at three more time points, so like 
day 23, 27, 35. And what you can see in the panel over on the uh, on the right hand side, it started out um, really a wild type with just a little bit of this uh, G163E, and you can see evolution to the Q148. Um, so there was clearly pressure here um, and uh, emergence of uh, dolotegravir uh, drug resistance. Importantly, this person did well once they got switched over to a um, uh, a protease inhibitor, um, but again, this is one of the first cases of developing dolotegravir drug resistance on therapy um, in a treatment-naive person. So just a reminder, it's a great drug, but, but, but this can happen. I hear sometimes people say, oh, you can't get drug resistance to dolotegravir, and that's just unfortunately not, not true. Um, but so do we need to freak out, and is dolotegravir resistance uh, widespread, and now we're about to lose this? This is just a reminder that this is not the case, and also a reminder of where we are. So um, these individuals, uh, they presented this, and I got a lot. They said Los Angeles County, and that's not Los Angeles County. I don't have to tell you guys this. But this is a, um, uh, a sort of nationwide uh, surveillance from a number of different jurisdictions. Uh, the rest of the states look okay to me, uh, as, as far as my uh, geography goes. And these are just 15,000 um, uh, resistance tests that were done for whatever reason. Um, and most of them were done after people had been on therapy for more than three months, but some of them were done at less than three months. And they did not find a ton of integrase um, resistance. So 65 out of these 15,000 had integrase um, uh, 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 resistance within the first three months of um, diagnosis. So not very common. Um, and it was 0.4 percent um, overall. Um, again, this is, this is not taking a group of people who were all getting baseline integrase resistance testing. It was done for any reason out there. Just a reminder that this is still very, very uncommon. This is just a snapshot of what you, um, of what you see uh, uh, that was present there. But some of it did occur in this group. Um, I'm sorry, I think I misspoke. It's 65 overall had integrase resistance, but only two of them had integrase resistance within three months of uh, their initial diagnosis. So it's still very uncommon to see in people who are um, uh, treatment naive. We know there have been reported cases of uh, integrase resistance as a transmitted uh, 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 drug resistance. So it can occur, but certainly is not widespread. And um, I think Rochelle Relinsky's group did a really nice job, and I'll just give you the snapshot of this because I'm running a little short on time, but saying, well, gosh, do we need to do integrase resistance testing on everyone? And doing modeling, if you estimate that about 0.1% of patients overall have integrase resistance across the board, um, it really, and they're starting on dolotegravir-based therapy, this is not a cost-effective strategy. We probably don't need to be doing integrase resistance testing on everyone. Um, partly because some of these integrase resistance mutations people will still suppress um, when they're on this, and also because there's not widely circulating integrase resistance in the field. Certainly if you have someone whose partner um, uh, has known integrase resistance, that's a different story, but across the board it's not part of my practice. This may change um, down the road, but I think we can be a little bit reassured by both the prevalence data that I just showed you, uh, which still shows that it's low, um, and some of these modeling uh, uh, thought experiments. How many of you guys are ordering integrase resistance at the time for everybody when you're, when you're doing it? Okay. Not, not everybody. Some people. Okay. All right. And are you guys finding much? Yeah. And, and tell us about it. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're getting it, right? Yeah, they're, you know, they're the possible transmitters. Yeah. That's why, so like in Manhattan, or like in certain concepts, you're 98% on the spectrum, and 10% not responsible. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think it's in the group who's not suppressing. I think it's a good point, right? But whether you need to do it across the board and everyone who walks in the door and is going to start, I, I'm not sure that that's that, that, that that's where we are yet. Oh, we may get there at some point. Could you repeat his yeah. comments just oh. for the rest of the audience? I'm not sure that I can repeat all that. I'm not sure that I can repeat all that. He was making the comment that when they're looking at individuals who are not suppressed, and that's where they're finding integrase resistance, and that he has a poster at IAS talking about transmitted integrase resistance. I do a good job summarizing. Okay, um, STDs, you're going to get a whole STD talk that's coming up, but this is just a little bit of a teaser, and why am I even including this in here? Well, we're in the great state of California um, here, and if you look, we have a lot of things to be proud of in California, but our syphilis rates are not one of them. So this is just a variety of different ways to look at syphilis, but compared to the rest of the United States, the Bay Area has more than twice the rate, and if you're thinking, well, no problem, I'm from L.A. or somewhere else in California, sorry, it's still quite high. Um, so we, syphilis has been a real problem, which is not a surprise to any of you, but aren't we kind of getting ahead of this, right, because all we ever do is talk about syphilis? No. We're going in the wrong direction. This is looking at prevalence rates, um, which have been rising um, in the United States in general, but certainly in California. Um, San Francisco is at the top. Sorry, that's just terrible news, but our rates are going up, not down, and with concerns about things like congenital syphilis and blindness, this really is an issue. So I think we were all struck by seeing the Ypergay group, which has done on-demand prep, looking at on-demand treatment for syphilis or syphilis pre-exposure prophylaxis. So basically what they looked at is high-risk um, uh, uh, MSM who were enrolled in the Ypergay study getting Truvada as on-demand prep. Um, and what they gave them was on-demand doxycycline at 200 milligrams uh, 24 hours after sex, but up to 72 hours after sex. And they said, don't take more than um, six pills um, per week, which I don't know why that's different than seven pills a week, but there you go, um, to avoid antibiotic, um, extra antibiotic um, exposure. And they were screening people every two months for STDs. And so what they saw first and foremost by looking at um, uh, uh, syphilis rates, and this is pre-exposure prophylaxis for syphilis, not for, not for HIV, that there was a difference. Um, so the rates were lower looking at this Kaplan-Meier curve um, with, a, with a decrease by about 80 percent, uh, well, because it's closer to 70 percent uh, uh, by that hazard ratio there. Well, what about chlamydia? Chlamydia is an excellent innocent bystander to get knocked out by the doxycycline. Also saw even a, a, a more marked um, um, reduction here uh, uh, when you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves. We're getting about 70% uh, reduction in chlamydial infections. Well, uh, gonorrhea is not treated by doxycycline, as we all know. So did gonorrhea rates change, or did just taking doxycycline make everybody be more responsible about their condom use? It did not make them more responsible about their condom use. There was no difference in the gonorrhea rates, which kind of helps to suggest that it actually was this intervention and not, um, not uh, some, some risk uh, or behavior modification uh, uh, by being a part of this study. Um, how do people tolerate it? Well, doxy, as we know, can cause some GI upset, and they did see some GI side effects, about 24% in the doxy uh, uh, prep arm versus 14% in the no prep arm. Um, so that's sort of interesting. On average, people took about seven doses um, per month, or 6.8 pills uh, per month. So they weren't using it a, you know, every day, but they definitely were using it. I think this is a really interesting idea. I'm not sure that it's ready for um, prime time, but I think certainly as we become more familiar with uh, PrEP and more comfortable with PrEP rollout, and we've seen the accompanying um, STD rates that we're just not getting a hold of, maybe we should be considering drugs like doxycycline even, either on a daily basis, which some groups are looking at, um, particularly in British Columbia, or in an intermittent way um, when, people have, uh, when people have sexual intercourse. So provocative, stay tuned, we need to know more. Yes? Um, 
Oh, because this technically is post-exposure prophylaxis because it's 24 hours after, within 24 hours after having sex. So they're on PrEP with Truvada, but they're getting post-exposure prophylaxis with on Doxy because they're taking it 24 to 72 hours after taking, after being exposed. And exposed means just having sex, which in San Francisco is exposed. Yeah. Well, does that answer your question? I shouldn't have called it PrEP. It's PEP. Yes. But they're on PrEP for HIV as well. Okay, so just a couple comments about um, iris. Uh, there was an interesting study. I know we don't see a whole lot of um, tuberculosis, um, but we do. But when we do, I think one of the things we really worry about is immune reconstitution syndrome. Um, and this study uh, gives us something that we can do about it. It's a South African study of 24 patients who were not on antiretroviral therapy, but who started within 30 days of TB treatment. And this is that vulnerable time. We know they should be started on antiretroviral uh, therapy, uh, certainly if they have a low T cell count as soon as possible. But then we know that that increases the risk of iris. So they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to four weeks of prednisone versus placebo, and the dosing strategy here was um, they took 40 milligrams for two weeks and then 20 milligrams for two weeks, and then they stopped. And the primary endpoint here was the reduction in TB iris using um, uh, uh, TB iris uh, consensus guidelines. And you could see that there was 46% uh, uh, of people had um, iris in the placebo group versus 32% in the prednisone group. Um, so uh, it was a, a reduction of uh, the relative risk was uh, uh, about 70% uh, 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 reduction, sorry, 30% reduction that we were seeing here with prednisone. Now, importantly, they let people have the ability to take prednisone if they developed um, iris, because you can see a third of the patients developed iris even though they were on prednisone. And this, I think, is even more striking. Uh, it looks like there was a reduction for the need of open-label prednisone, um, whereas 28% of the individuals who were in the placebo arm went on to prednisone. Um, only 13% of the people who were in the prednisone arm uh, uh, ended up going on to a higher dose. This is more like one mg per kg, uh, open-label standard of care uh, prednisone treatment. So this was a 50% reduction in the need for um, open-label prednisone. Um, so this is an interesting strategy to consider in people who may be at higher risk for developing um, uh, uh, iris uh, to tuberculosis and just doing it right off the bat rather than waiting for them to develop signs or symptoms. What about the safety? We worry about prednisone, particularly in people with advanced HIV. So there was no difference in mortality, and this is important. There was no increase in invasive bacterial infections or new AIDS events. They didn't specifically talk about herpes in this study um, uh, that I recall. We know that we can see an increased risk, and we've seen this in some other studies of herpes infections, um, but those tend to not be um, uh, uh, super morbid and certainly not lead to mortality. And there were fewer hospitalizations with the prednisone, so that's good news. I just wanted to close with this one other comment. Again, this was a little bit provocative, talking about the increased risk of iris that they saw with integrase inhibitors. Two observational cohorts that looked at um, individuals who got started on an integrase versus a non-integrase in those with a low T cell count who might be at a higher risk of developing um, iris. Um, the Dutch cohort was about 350 patients, um, and they saw that there was a 38% uh, of these individuals developed iris um, if they were on an integrase versus 16% if they weren't on an integrase, so about a 50% um, reduction that was there. Interestingly, a French cohort that was much bigger, so much lower rates of iris, about 3% of individuals got iris if they were on an integrase versus those who weren't on an integrase, which was 1.5%, uh, but still about a 50% reduction. I think this highlights two things for me. One, iris is a difficult diagnosis to make, and it all depends on what definition that you're using. I don't think that there's more iris in the Netherlands than there is in France. I suspect they're just defining it slightly differently. Um, but if you do 
you have individuals who you think are particularly high risk, a low T cell count, and potentially, you know, with MAC or tuberculosis, which we know can be associated with a higher rate of uh, iris, you might want to consider for their initial therapy um, staying away from, from dolotegravir. Um, but certainly, this is not a, a, a huge issue. These rates are, are, are quite low, particularly from the French study, which was a larger study. So you can take it with a grain of salt. Um, I will go ahead and stop there. I wanted to acknowledge Susan Coffey and Hyman Scott, who shared some uh, excellent slides with me. Great. Thank you very much. And I'm so we have time for several questions. Um, for, in terms of, um, again, for the clinicians, for those who might be considering a switch in a particular patient, um, some of your studies, they had like six months of yeah. control. What do you do about the patients who blip? Do, are they excluded automatically from consideration for, for a switch, or do you have some threshold for right. blipping? So most of these studies, I don't, can you guys hear me if I just talk about it? Most of these studies had some criteria allowing for blips. They didn't say that people had to be perfect. But usually they don't want to have a lot. You know, it'll be like less than 200, you know, one, one blip or two blips sometime in the last 48 weeks. I think if people are blipping a lot and you can't figure out what's really going on, that's of concern. But blips happen, and we know that in general they're not that big of a deal as long as it really is truly a blip and not an indication of non-adherence. Right. Um, an excellent question is in terms of what actually is the effect of statins uh, on cardiovascular risk of people with HIV once they start? I mean, are there follow-up studies that show that, you know, at what level, you know, can you do you have to extrapolate from the general population or can you speak for the HIV-specific population about uh, how much starting a statin actually reduces the risk once you identify their risk? Yeah, so that's... That's a great question. I don't think this is working. That's right. I'll just talk about it. Um, so yes, we know that they work to reduce lipids and to reduce inflammation and to reduce cardiovascular events. But just to address this question, I'm sure you guys have heard about this study lots, but the Reprieve study is ongoing right now. It's a giant study. It's one of the biggest studies that has ever been done in HIV. Just to answer this question that when we put people on a statin, what happens to their actual outcomes for coronary artery disease and vascular disease? particularly in patients who didn't otherwise have an indication. Oh, trying again? I, hello? Okay. Um, so just, just to answer that, uh, answer that question, I think we know that in people who have coronary um, artery disease that putting them on statins reduces the risk. But the real question is, what about folks who don't have known disease, but we think that HIV is, you know, a risk equivalent? Should they all be on a statin, or are we just adding more pills and they don't benefit? So we need to really answer that question. Since you brought up bone de uh -oh. <laughs> density, um, you know, it's always been, it's been a topic for quite a while, and of course there's a lot of marketing around these issues. Right. Since you brought it up, was there any follow-up in terms of the clinical significance of this from, yeah. from Croy or in the last year? So I, I think what Steve's getting at is, you know, a lot of focus on the switch from, you know, TDF to TAF and that you see all these bone markers come down and DEXAs um, change. I have not seen good, robust data that show that people are breaking, uh, you know, hips and spines less um, because of that. I think that's going to take time to show, um, but we don't have good, hard outcomes that I'm aware of about, you know, reduction in clinical fractures. So we're using a lot of these surrogate markers um, and I think a DEXA is a, is a good marker, but it's, it's most well-validated in postmenopausal women, and that's not the group that we're looking at. And just to get back to the statin issue, so are you recommending use of a statin who's 
uh, in someone with HIV whose lipids would otherwise dictate if they have no other risk factors. They're not smoking, they're not obese, they don't have diabetes, they're not hypertensive. Yeah. Uh, would you initiate statin therapy in that individual? Yeah. So, again, I don't think that we have data to inform us about that. I actually do do the, the American College of Cardiology um, risk calculator. I find that helpful, um, and I think it's interesting. I know it's gotten criticized for over-prescribing statins, and it doesn't include HIV. But if right now in my practice, if someone really has no other risk factors um, besides just HIV, I try and get them in a study um, because I don't know what to tell them that. If they're really worried um, or if they have a family history, which might push me in that direction, I'll give it to them, but I don't think that we have data to tell us what, what to do. Um, and as we know, another pill is another pill. Yeah. I know you thought you addressed where LA is, yeah. but the question is, was it really San Francisco that was part of that study or was it really LA? That's, that's, I, I can t <laughs> all I can tell you, I didn't contact the, the, the author of the poster, but they were attributing that to Los Angeles. I think they were geographically challenged rather than you know, on the map, rather than not knowing where the data had come from. So I really do think it came from LA, but I can follow up on that. I mean, I guess the, the, this question and the second yeah. question are somewhat related, and that is given our sort of enhanced risk for syphilis yeah. um, in the San Francisco, even compared to LA, yeah. um, should we, be, even though that data from LA didn't show integrase resistance, can we really extrapolate that to San Francisco? Um, or should we be worried about resistance more? Well, I, yeah, I mean, you can't answer. That's fine. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know that we have an. I don't know that we have an answer to that. What I what I will say is, integrase resistance, resistance testing is now widely available. Um, there's certainly nothing wrong if you have someone who's starting out therapy. They're they're young. They're newly infected, and they've been highly sexually active. And you're worried that they may have had transmitted drug resistance mutation. Yes, I think that that's someone. The, the better part of valor is probably to test them. Um, I don't think anyone would fault you would fault you for doing that. And we know there's transmitted drug resistance mutations with integrase. It's not yeah. widespread, but it certainly can happen. Yeah. How many people have had some seroconvert on PrEP, HIV PrEP? I mean, that might be there's one up here, uh, just one, important. or I mean, that that might be a person you know who you might start oh, looking, yeah. you know, uh, if you're trying to sort of decide who to check for transmit resistance, maybe the person who seems to have seroconverted on PrEP might be someone who I would definitely consider that if you have sort of cost analysis for your general clinic population. The, question, the next question has to do with um, doxycycline resistance and syphilis. Yeah. Um, if we're using it now, you know, um, if, for PEP, yeah. um, do we need to worry about right. this? Right, so it's a, great, it's a great question. It's actually very hard to get at because you don't grow syphilis in a dish. So one of the ongoing studies is doing what I think is very clever, which is that they're monitoring uh, staph nasal swabs to look at increasing doxycycline resistance in the staph nasal swabs. That doesn't tell you about syphilis resistance. What we know about syphilis, and Susan is here, and maybe she can address this further. I don't know of doxycycline-related syphilis resistance, but we do know that there was a big uh, problem with azithromycin when given as a prophylaxis. So while we see that syphilis has developed, to my knowledge, no penicillin drug resistance, despite using it for, you know, as long as penicillin has been around, and to my knowledge, no doxycycline drug resistance, it can develop drug resistance to azithromycin. So it's not impossible. And remember, azithromycin docs are obviously two different classes. Susan, any doxy drug resistance that you know of? Yeah, and the hope is that it, it wouldn't occur, but certainly that's one of the risks, the, the concerns here. I know that Dr. Phillips is, is Susan's going to talk a little bit about the problems with um, LA bicell <laughs> procaine availability, and so this is really a pertinent question. 
um, and something that if you, I think, suspect, and Susan, you can address this maybe in your talk, if you suspect doxy uh, resistance for some reason in your syphilis patients, we should be contacting the health department immediately to sort of figure out what techniques we may have to sort of look for that. Um, because I think that it, it's not a settled question just because we don't seem to have evidence for it. Is that fair to, to say at this point? Um, and the next question has to do is, does integrase resistance affect replicative capa uh, replication capacity? And we know that the M184V and 3TC does, even though it's transmissible. Is there some evidence one way or the other? No, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I'm going to ask other folks in the audience who may know that better. Right. Replication capacity. But, but there, there was, I remember a whole, something at Croy two years ago about a bottleneck and why it was sort of this terminal bottleneck and that if you develop drug resistance to, to dolichegravir, you kind of couldn't continue to evolve down that pathway. But that's not the same thing as replicative capacity. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another question that I think I'm going to defer to Dr. Phillips, and that has to do with whether doxy, PEP, um, increases risky behaviors, and uh, we'll combine that with, you know, do, is some of our maybe data on syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia due to our enhanced screening in a population of people who are very active and maybe, I mean, I'm just going to propose that maybe there are more patients in San Francisco on HIV PrEP than there is in LA <laughs> um, in general, and I don't know the answer to that if there's some, because I know that that data is sometimes very hard to get across the board from just prescribing habits and, and pharmacy data. Do you have, unless you have some idea. I don't know that off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, and um, the question is, do we know how many syphilis cases, well, I'm going to, this is a syphilis question again, maybe I'll, I think I'll leave the syphilis questions for uh, Dr. Phillips, if that's okay. Um, and so I guess the question is, do we have any other questions for Dr. Uh, Luke Meyer? Um, how long is, um, since we're, you brought up Iris, yeah. and that's one of your favorite, how long is the, if we are going, if we are worrying someone who we think right. has um, early MAC or latent, or TB, mm -hmm. how long is the prednisone prescription? I mean, what do so, we? So in this, in this study, if you're giving it as a prophylaxis, yeah. they gave it for four weeks. So okay. it was, you know, 40 milligrams for two weeks, 20 milligrams for two weeks, and then they stopped. Then if you're treating people because they've developed iris, right. how long do you give it yeah. for until they don't need it? Um, they've looked at it for four weeks, but I think all of us who are clinicians, particularly with MAC, I've had patients who it's taken me months to get them off yeah. of it because I just, they're too much abdominal pain and swelling and it's just been very difficult. So if you have a strategy that you could give them just a month and, and, and not have it be a problem and avert this, you may be giving them a lot less prednisone than you would over, over the long run. I just wanted to make one other just quick comment just since you, you brought up tuberculosis, um, uh, which is that there was an intriguing study. It was very small looking at dolotegravir and, and rifapentine. Again, rifapentine we don't use widely, but it is part of the 3-HP, so the 3 uh, giving 12 doses once a week for latent tuberculosis, which has been really attractive because it helps to shorten the length of therapy. And I just want to remind people that we don't have great data for the for the dosing of dolotegravir with rifapentine. We probably should give it twice a day. There's a little bit of a distressing report from Croy, which was in healthy volunteers, so lots of caveats about that. Where two out of the three healthy volunteers got a hypersensitivity 
reaction when they were given dolutegravir and rifepentine together. Now, this just may be bad luck. It was the rifepentine. We don't know the answer to that, but I think my practice has been, until we have more information, to not give dolutegravir and rifepentine together, A, because we don't really know how to dose it correctly. There are studies uh, underway to look at that, and B, because of this concern um, about uh, a potentially increased risk for hypersensitivity reaction, which we don't have a good explanation for from a, from a pharmacological point of view. Steve? Group. Beg your pardon? Not, so when you give dolotegravir with rifampin, you just have to dose it at 50 milligrams twice a day, and that's fine, and we have good data to inform us, and there was not an issue that, that we've seen with hypersensitivity. Yeah. Good. Thank you very much again, Dr. Lukemeyer. Thank you. Excellent.